In this episode, I host part six of an ongoing conversation between Shin Zen Yang, meditation teacher and neuroscience research consultant, Chelsea Fasano, a Columbia University neuroscience student, and Dr. Jay Sanguinetti, assistant director for the Center of Consciousness Studies and research professor at the University of New Mexico. In this episode, we take a deep dive into the dopaminergic reward system, including current thinking on its function, its interaction with meditation practice, and Buddhist notions of craving and suffering. We also discuss what to do after enlightenment and speculate about the Fibonacci sequence as a universal constant. So without further ado, Shinzen Young, Chelsea Fasano, and Dr. Jay Sanguinetti. Shinzen Young, Chelsea Fasano, and Dr. Jay Sanguinetti, welcome back to the podcast. Good to be here. So this is gosh, the sixth of these uh, episodes, these trialogues, uh, dialogues became trialogues. And I have to say, each time we have one of these, I have a doubling of my brain capacity. I now have, I checked just yesterday, 32 brain cells. Uh, so I must say, you know, excited. you know, though, just do the math, man. You don't have, <laughs> this is leading to a planet-sized brain within just a few years. <laughs> I'm hoping if we can get to 12, I can take over the world uh, uh, evil scheme of some sort. That would be great. But first of all, I wanted to say congratulations to uh, Shinzen and Jay for the, re re the recently released Guardian short film about your work at Semilab on non-invasive <laughs> neuromodulation. I thought it was a beautifully filmed piece, really captured the vision of your work. So my hat's off to director Lina Piloplite. I will link to that in the show notes. And also, as I understand, you were mentioning before we went on air that your lab is involved this year in the Science and Roger Penrose webinar hosted by the Science of Consciousness Conference dedicated to Nobel laureate Roger Penrose. Yep, that's right. We're having a special seminar in August, uh, starting on August 3rd. Uh, totally dedicated to Sir Roger Penrose, who is a collaborator of the Center for Consciousness Studies, um, which Shenzhen and I are part of. And uh, yeah, it's going to be a fun four days of talking about black holes, quantum consciousness, and many other topics that are uh, dear and near to Roger Penrose's heart. Uh, so it should be a fun time. It's all uh, broadcasted live. Um, and, um, yep, yeah, it, it, it should be really a fun time. Oh, fabulous. I'll link to that in the show notes. Certainly last time in uh, episode five of this series, we left off teasing about how meditation practice might alter the reward systems. And indeed Chelsea posed the question, can we stimulate reward pathways to motivate ongoing meditation practice? So perhaps we can start there, uh, to spark off the discussion, a uh, question from me to all of you. What effects of meditation practice on the reward system have been observed? What are the feasible models to explain these effects? I understand there's some divergence there. And what are the implications of all of this for the individual meditation practitioner? That sounds like a question for Dr. Sanguinetti. Um, <laughs> may I extend it a little bit by um, maybe also requesting uh, latest understanding of what the reward system is for those that may not be up on you know that uh, uh, circuitry um, and uh, if there is also a punishment system I'd be interested in knowing its relationship to the reward system because <laughs> it seems to me they would go hand in hand maybe it's the amygdala and 
something. But I'd extend the question to a nice little introduction that I'd like to hear uh, the latest uh, of that big picture. Sure, happy to. Uh, so the latest will take probably six to 12 hours. Uh, we'll have to do multiple <laughs> podcasts. <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> we'll leave them hanging again. <laughs> right, but I'll, I'll, give, uh, I'll give the 30,000 foot view and we can dive in uh, to wherever is interesting. Um, so we have to really start by talking about subcortical brain regions that are really shared by all the other uh, mammals that we are related to. So this, these are circuitries that really aren't just humans. Uh, this sort of goes back in the lineage of evolution. And uh, it really relates to brain regions that involve dopamine. So I think most people out there are familiar with dopamine. Um, and a circuitry called the corticolimbic striatal circuitry. Um, so these are brain regions that create dopamine. And then they use dopamine to help us learn um, relationships between stimuli and responses that help us survive. Um, so when we eat a new food, for example, if that food is non-poisonous and we like it, we need to learn that we like that food and we need to relate that stimulus, the picture of the food or the actual stimulus of the food uh, to what it was like to have the experience of enjoying it. Um, so that's really these dopaminergic um, deep brain systems that help us learn what's relevant for our survival and really for humans, what's, you know, learning what's relevant for our inner experience, uh, what we like and what we don't like. Um, so that's a really old system in the brain. M many, um, almost all of the other animals out there have that same circuitry in some sense, and that helps them survive and learn what's relevant for survival. Um, that same deep learning system related to the basal ganglia um, and other areas that uh, are involved with dopamine are also the systems that go haywire for things like addiction. Um, so those are the things that start craving to the point where you have maladaptive behaviors. And it turns out those same systems are also acted on by meditation um, in the opposite direction. So helping us to break uh, what's called implicit behaviors or automatic associations. Um, so really, this is a deep learning system that is highly relevant for survival, for motivation, for learning, uh, and for associating stimuli with responses. Where do you want to dive in from there? <laughs> Does it link to a punishment system? Yes. Um, so if you think back to uh, the behaviorist, like our friends B.F. Skinner, um, so reward and punishment are all related to a similar system. And it really depends on trying to enhance or decrease behavior. Um, so the system that's learning rewards is, is the same system that's learning punishments. And the whole thing is geared towards action or behavior. Uh, what the brain is trying to learn how to do is figure out given all the stimuli and all the inputs uh, that are coming into the brain, how do I guide the animal to an optimum behavior? And so punishment is part of that. If the animal is getting punished or getting a negative reinforcer, uh, it also has to learn from that. So it gets back to learning really. Um, and the same dopamine system, the same corticolimbic striatal system um, is also helping the animal learn from punishment or learn from negative reinforcement. And where does the 
things like the, um, say the amygdala or the hippocampus, how do they interact with this uh, cortical limbo, limbic meso? Uh, uh, Critical limbic striatal loop. Yeah, striatal loop. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> let's, let's just call it the basal ganglia. That's a, an easier yeah. term. The basal ganglia encompasses many of these brain regions that uh, use dopamine and other neurotransmitters to learn. Um, so your question, Shenzhen, is about the amygdala. So the amygdala is really serving up uh, fear, anger, some of the more um, negative but useful emotions that help uh, mammals learn. And, you know, you can imagine a situation, um, <clears throat> you've got uh, two monkeys in a tree and they're fighting over a, a banana. Um, and, you know, they, they only have one banana, so they have to sort of elicit some emotion. Uh, maybe one of the monkeys hits the other monkey too hard on the head and uh, really doesn't mean to do that. So now you've got some negative fear response. You've got some emotions um, emerging in that system that animal needs to learn from that. It, it, it can hit the other monkey, but not too hard. Um, and so that, that information may be served up uh, in the fear system, for example, um, for these monkeys in the amygdala. But then that signal needs to feed into the learning system. So the learning system, again, is the basal ganglia. And those systems have to interact so the animal can learn, what do I do in the future? Okay, the next time I'm fighting over a banana, I should hit the other monkey, but not quite so hard, um, for example. And so really this basal ganglia system is, is learning how to associate things like fear to future behavior um, to really help it guide its action. Now, what's really interesting about the basal ganglia and what really sort of relates back to something like uh, meditation or even Buddhist psychology is when you start doing these stimulus response associations over time, what tends to happen is you go from having to think about it as a human, which is called explicit reasoning or explicit uh, associations mm -hmm. to a more implicit system, to a system where you don't have to think about it anymore. It just becomes automatic. And those automatic behaviors then become biasing in the system. They can actually bias your behavior in ways that you may not be consciously aware of. Um, so for example, when your phone beeps, you don't have to think about, is it a text message? Is it a Facebook response? Uh, is it something from Twitter? Your brain just picks the phone up before you even think about it and you're scrolling for 30 minutes before you even consciously realize what you're doing. So that's an automatic sort of behavioral response um, that's sort of subconscious. You're not even thinking about it. And that's all happening through that basal ganglia system, that automatic sort of pushing of behavior in a way that uh, becomes implicit. Do you remember the um, paper that Dave Vago and I did when we were at Harvard together Oh, you know what? I, I don't know if that was ever actually published, but one of the things that he was most struck by was, God, I don't want to misrepresent it. It was a while ago, but basically he got a really tight correlation between years of practice and um, 
the role of the basal ganglia, basal ganglia in um, a sort of taking over, <laughs> um, which we interpreted as what you just said, that the meditation habits had simply now become second nature and they were down there, but he really got a strong statistical effect. We could check with him. Mm. I don't remember the details and honestly don't remember if we ever published it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I haven't seen that from Dave's lab, but Chelsea and I were looking at some other papers that have been published recently that show that meditation practice, especially focused attention or focused awareness practice, uh, really tends to act on the basal ganglia um, in terms of activating it during practice. And then over time, it tends to change that circuitry. So the cortico, cortico means uh, cortical. So the corticolimbic, limbic is basal ganglia, that loop between those two regions tends to change over practice. And yeah, Dave uh, Vago has some really great ideas about what that means in relation to practice. Um, the basic idea is that the focused attention practice is giving you a little bit of space, temporal space from that automatic behavioral activation. So if you think about Facebook again, many of us have a problem. We are on Facebook too much. We can tell you that verbally, you know, consciously, I know that this is a problem but I can't break that automatic behavior. I get that little ding from the phone and I just pick it up, even when I'm driving my car sometimes, which is really dangerous and maladaptive. It actually leads to car wrecks a lot. So we know this is a problem, but this deep limbic circuitry uh, is really driving our behavior and it's really hard to break that automatic association. And so what Dave Fago is claiming is that through attention practice, you're actually giving yourself a little bit of space from that automatic processing. By atten yeah. focused attention, did he, he mean counting your breath or breath at the nose, at the abdomen, that kind of practice specifically? Yeah, it's, I don't think Dave talks about sp the specific practices, but the other studies that have shown this have really looked at the focusing on an object of awareness is the way they describe it. It's usually focus on the breath because that's where a lot of these practices are starting. Yeah, because if it's a broad, complicated object, that's going to be different from a small, simple object, but they're both focuses, right? So that's... But that's very interesting. Mm -hmm. I just reviewed Dave, uh, Dave Vago's papers at the suggestion of um, Dr. Sanguinetti last night. And I think that um, from my understanding, he looks at many different practices and how both of the theories that you two just postulated could be happening in all of them. So I saw him reviewing focused awareness, open monitoring, yoga, and even ethical various ethical practices and looking at how both of them can either create space from negative automated habits and also reinforce positive automatic habits leading to a sort of long-term potentiation of these uh, dopaminergic loops and possibly creating a more voluntary control over reward systems. Uh, so I think there's, uh, when you look at activation of any given area, as you know, we all know here, it's going to it could be interpreted in many different ways and likely is activated under different circumstances and for different reasons. And I think both positive and negative uses of automation are covered in his work um, mm -hmm. as far as I understood it. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great description. And, you know, I think one of the things that Dave Vago, uh, he's got this really interesting model. I think it's called SART. Uh, Chelsea, you may have uh, yeah. read about it. Uh, I don't remember what it stands for. So people can look it up unless you can remember. Yeah, I remember. Uh, it's um, it's uh, self-regulation, self-transcendence, and self-awareness. Uh, the A is the awareness, the regulation is the R, and the transcendence is the T, and the S is self-dash. Yeah, yeah. So what's really interesting about Dave's view is he's linking what we're talking about. So the stimulus response system and the basal ganglia to the way that the brain in general becomes biased towards behavior, towards perception, and even towards thinking. Uh, we know, for example, in something like depression, uh, the brain can become very biased towards negative information. So self-referential negative information, like the word stupid or ugly, those types of words for depressed people stick in their brains much more than the words like beautiful, smart, you know, kind of positive. Um, so we know that the brain can sort of bias itself towards certain modes of thinking, certain modes of behavior. And uh, what I really like about Dave's model is he's talking about the central role of the basal ganglia and these dopaminergic learning systems and taking a stimulus and biasing the information towards a response. Um, now, of course, that's really adaptive. That's how we've learned how to survive in the world. And that's, you know, we, we don't want to have to consciously think about everything all the time, like how to drive a car or how to ride your bike or even how to talk. I'm not consciously thinking about how to move my motor movements, my brain's just taking care of that. That's part of the basal ganglia. But that system can go haywire and it can lead to something like addiction to video games, addiction to the internet, addiction to drugs. Um, and that's really where it starts becoming um, a problem in terms of helping you live healthy, happy, you know, the types of things we're talking about with mindfulness and meditation. And so somewhere between those two extremes is where we're all living. We're all living in this system that is sort of biased to, you know, maintain a sense of self. And that sense of self has its own sort of implicit biased mechanisms to help it survive, uh, which are mostly healthy, mostly helps us to survive. Um, but especially with things like Facebook and other things that are feeding us negative information, that system can bias towards not living our happiest, fullest potential without being diagnosed in something like depression or anxiety. And so I think that's where something like mindfulness and meditation comes in for people who don't have a diagnosable disease, but helps move them towards breaking some of that automatic behavior and some of that sort of biasing inner mechanism to help them disengage with something like Facebook that they perceive as not healthy, and then re-engage with something like their family or cooking or taking a walk, you know, these other things that start making you feel a little bit better in the world. Um, and I love Dave's model because he really gives a full encompassing model of how that disengagement mechanism happens so you can re-engage your attention uh, and really your conscious being with something that's making you feel uh, better, happier, you know, more fulfilled, that kind of stuff. First of all, I love those articles. I wish I had read them more thoroughly a long time ago because his models of the self are brilliant, which is what Shinzen and I first started off this conversation um, talking about. And I think he has a really thorough 
uh, way of addressing what is the self neurologically, but in terms of the um, dopamine systems you're talking about, another article that Jay forwarded me is someone I cannot pronounce, K-N-Y-T-L is the first author. Um, uh, and they actually propose um, a sort of mechanism for how this sort of um, automation and reward system uh, behavior is being, is functioning on a neurological level, which I think is super interesting and kind of ties together I mean, it's Jay's, Jay's article that he forwarded me, so hop in whenever you want. But um, what it kind of, it, it, the reason why it was impressive to me is it relates to sort of psych 101 concepts of operant conditioning. So like when you ask, is the, are the mesolimbic dopaminergic pathways for reward or punishment? It's actually like the combination of reward and punishment that is often the most effective in human learning, unfortunately. So if you look at like any psych 101 class, you're going to get operant conditioning and then randomized or fixed interval or ratio re reinforcement schedules. And the ones that are random where you don't know when the reward is coming and you might get punished or you might get nothing are actually the most reinforcing for the human brain, which is why people develop addictions to things like randomized gambling and drugs that produce a response, a reward response some of the time, but not others. So we're sort of wired in a weird way to go for these mechanisms of reward that are unreliable uh, and risky and sort of partially negative. Um, and the, this article proposes that the lower resting tonic dopamine you have, the more likely you are to learn from negative feedback. Whereas when you have a higher resting tonic dopamine level, you're more likely to go for positive feedback. So you're likely to respond to positive uh, reinforcement rather than punishment. And the theory is that meditation may increase the resting tonic dopamine level, thus leading you to be able to make more positive decisions and less of the ones Jay is talking about, where you're making a decision that you don't have control over and that doesn't actually lead you to pleasure, but you're not in control of the situation, meaning that you're going towards something that's kind of related to unhappiness rather than happiness and can't get, manage to get that under control. So that's sort of the idea that I think I got from Jay last night as I was bothering him over Slack during dinner. Um, and I find it really compelling. <laughs> find it super compelling and super interesting and really ties together a lot of different theories. And Jay, feel free to correct me if that's not quite um, what you see as the point. First, uh, let me ask, uh, who's the author? I didn't catch that. It's Paul Kintel, K-N-Y-T-L. N-Y-T. L. L. Yeah. Knittle. And Betram Opitz. The name of the paper, for anybody who's interested, is Meditation Experience Predicts Negative Reinforcement Learning and its Association Associated with Attenuated FRN Amplitude. Yeah, it's a great paper. FRN? Yeah, the FRN is the feedback-related negativity. It's an EEG marker of feedback learning. Um, so just as Chelsea was talking about, they're using a paradigm <clears throat> where um, people are learning about reward ratios. So it's sort of like a gambling task uh, where you don't know, you just pick a random stimulus and you don't actually know which one will be more rewarding. One has like an 80% reward, one has a 20% likelihood of reward. So you're just randomly picking and you're randomly learning these reward schedules. Um, and it turns out that, uh, and then they give you feedback some of the time. So the feedback is helping you learn. And it turns out that, uh, yeah, the more dopamine you have in the system, the more you're learning from certain types of feedback. 
And you can actually see those feedback signals in the EEG. If you just look at the electrical activity of the brain. Wow. Um, so they basically found the more meditation experience you have, the more you change that signal. So it's a really elegant study. Well, mm -hmm. wouldn't that be the math to explain the exponential potential? If, if you're getting, if you're actually changing the parameter of the sensitivity to the feedback, in nature, that creates a self-reinforcing um, process that usually yes. takes an exponential growth. Yes, and it could, could go in either direction. So if you continue to go for negative feedback that has a really high release of dopamine only randomly, and then you become more and more attenuated to and fix on that behavior, you could theoretically go down that loop forever uh, into serious drug addiction or whatever other behavior is happening. And if you choose the positive reward loop where you increase tonic dopamine levels, then you could theoretically continue to uh, go in that direction, raising tonic dopamine levels and choosing positive rewards uh, until the point where the negative loops are less appealing and less appealing. And this, so this uh, theoretically goes in both directions. That's fascinating. Um, could you uh, make a little bit more specific what's meant by the phrase uh, resting tonic dopamine? I mean, I think this is probably a more complicated question than I can really answer, but from my understanding there, it just on a very simple level means the sort of amount of dopamine available in the dopaminergic circuits at rest, meaning that like without a uh, specific stimulus being introduced, your brain is sort of producing, just like in, in depression, we know that there's less serotonin in the cleft for people who are suffering from serious clinical depression, which is what SSRIs do is sort of claim to fix that problem or do fix that problem by uh, blocking reuptake. So this is sort of a similar thing in the dopaminergic structures, meaning that there just may be more available dopamine all the time. Uh, and that's what they're qualifying is resting tonic dopamine levels uh, as, as per my understanding currently. <laughs> Yep, that's uh, right. And so you know, it's what, the whole, it's the whole, uh, it's any neurons that are dopaminergic, um, their average level at resting. I think they're specifically looking at the basal ganglia striatum nucleus accumbens area and how that resting dopamine would then go to the I anterior see. cingulate cortex and then frontal regions, and then how frontal regions can sort of from a top down process evoke backwards the same loop of that uh, dopamine that seems to come up from the sort of lower uh, subcortical areas into the cortex and back. I see. So it's actually more specific. It's resting tonic dopamine in uh, 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 a certain structure. Is that right, Jay? Group of the basal ganglia area, I think, is where they're me measuring it. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. There's a, a really famous paper by Kajir um, that showed that during um, certain types of meditation, um, I believe it was jhana practice, uh, they that you get 65% increase in dopamine in the basal ganglia when you're in that state, as compared to some type of uh, verbal task or something. So there's a control task where you're not meditating, you're just doing something. So as compared to that, they had one participant, I think, remind me, Chelsea, if it's different, but I think it's just an N of one. So take it with a little grain of salt. 
but the tonic level of dopamine in the task is X. And then you're in jhana one, jhana two, jhana three, which is a state of uh, joy and ecstasy. Um, Shenzhen, you can probably define it much better, but you're having this sort of emotional state. Um, in that meditative state, you see a 65% increase of dopamine. And they're imaging that in the MRI. So you can look at different neurochemicals um, or maybe they actually use PET scan, but either way, they're using some brain imaging and you basically see, um, you see a huge increase in the sort of baseline level of dopamine. Now, just to briefly clarify, I think you're referencing two studies simultaneously. One is the Haggerty and colleagues study, which is the singular participant. And I had this weird suspicion right. of Shinzen for the longest time because they call him <laughs> S. And he goes through the jhanas and they get a moderate increase in dopamine in the second jhana. And the other paper is the Kajir and they have eight male participants. And I don't think it's jhana related, but actually yoga nidra. And that's the one where they use the PET scan and they're actually able to look at receptor site uptake in specific, whereas Haggerty uses EEG and looks at activation in those areas that we just mentioned that would be producing dopamine. So it's slightly different measures in both, but they're both looking at dopaminergic responses in different ways. One of the co-authors in that paper is Lee Brasington, author of Right Concentration, a Practical Guide to the Jhanas, and a previous guest on this podcast, in fact. So it might be possible, I've been in touch with Lee recently, it might be possible uh, to invite him to discuss the particulars of that, of that study. Or of study. this, maybe it's going to become a tetralogue. Or a pencil. We, all, yeah, we had also brought that idea up of bringing Dave Vago to the team. And then I fear we're just doing serious podcast takeover here, which I am not going to lie. I'm in support of this. <laughs> yeah. No, but we, we might bring, I haven't talked to Lee for quite a while. It would be interesting. Yeah. He's Probably also can. someone that this, this whole question for me started out because uh, someone wrote me asking me, they said they'd been meditating for a long time and but we're not experiencing any sort of bliss pity you know positive affect um, from the experience and then i basically forwarded them to steve because i only had one suggestion from one of my teachers who's from a tantric lineage and it's not meditation related per se and then lee, uh, steve forwarded him to lee prasington so it's all coming back together uh in my mind now <laughs> centered around this one person um, but it seems like a, one of the systems that's developed reliable ways in Buddhism to specifically go to states of pleasure. And this study does uh, support the idea that during those pleasurable states that reward systems are being stimulated, though they do say that the actual response that they're getting from in this area is much lower than they would have expected. So they say that the subject reported the experience being akin to multiple subsequent orgasms, but that the actual dopaminergic response they got was not as high as you would expect that sort of experience to be and that you would need almost like a drug induced, uh, a drug induced level of hyperstimulation of dopaminergic pathways normally to produce that subjective experience. Their theory about why this is, is fascinating. They say that they think it has to do with signal to noise ratio, that because there's less noise, in other areas of the brain that the signal is perceived as subjectively stronger, which uh, is something that a lot of meditation teachers say. So, uh, however, that's sort of in the discussion section. That's not been categorically proven, I don't think. Yeah, well, that point caught my attention also. Um, and my first thought was, this is sort of a fatal flaw, maybe. I mean, this is... <laughs> 
<laughs> uh, they gloss over it <laughs> and move on. But this thing that's better than multiple orgasms or whatever it was, um, didn't really move the physical needle all that much. I mean, uh, isn't right. that isn't that what we were sort of looking for? Well, Jay and I were talking. Sorry, go on, Shinzen. No, I'm done. Uh, uh, or or am I not? Am I not seeing something? <laughs> yeah, no, I think you're seeing something. And I think the question is why. So it seems that, and Jay, Jay and I were texting about this last night, that there's just more to pleasure than the dopaminergic reward systems, which is actually well known in neuroscience. Like reward or liking or want, uh, liking and wanting are separable. So wanting and going towards or having approach behavior towards the stimuli is different than pleasure and liking. They're not totally separable, but they're overlapping things that are different neurologically. And pleasure, multiple orgasms specifically, would obviously involve like efferent activity from the body, uh, you know, serotonin and oxytocin, totally different brain regions, possibly the insula. Like who knows, right? It's a different system to experience pleasure than it is to experiencing wanting or desire. If we could get Lee Brasington on this. <laughs> uh, broadcast, we could um, discuss it with them directly and get a lot of details. Um, and of course, that would be for me as a virtual professional Buddhologist, um, a lot of fun <laughs> sorting out the minutiae of the different jhana systems. And by the way, that's really important. Uh, they miss that in the article. They make it sound like there's just one jhana system. There's lots of them. Um, and they're significant. Some of them are significantly different, but use similar words. Anyway, um, uh, so um, it would be, it, it seems to me that this is, it's very strange, right? We, you would expect with such an intense subjective report that there'd be something on the dopamine needle. Um, but apparently there wasn't. There was something, yeah. but it was very minimal in comparison to what they expected. So yeah, I, I'll just add to Shenzhen to give you context. So I had the two papers mixed up, but the Haggerty paper was using fMRI. So they're looking at bold activation in these regions. And with a single subject, that's going to be a very insensitive design to detect differences. Um, you know, because with, with, with fMRI, you're looking at blood flow and you're comparing differences between two conditions. Um, so yeah, with, with a single subject, it's really hard to design a paradigm to get sensitive differences. So in defense of the, the researchers and the paradigm, it might be the case that the difference between jhana two and jhana three is insufficient to detect a significant difference with fMRI with one subject. Um, so, you know, Chelsea and I were talking about this. It might just be the way that they're measuring the brain. Um, if you were to directly measure dopamine, for example, you might actually see this difference. And that's what the other paper was doing. 
Um, so we could do this actually at the University of Arizona if we knew anybody, uh, wink, wink on the call, who could put themselves into these ecstatic states, uh, you would actually want to do something where you're looking at the expression of these neurochemicals. Um, and we have a way to do that in the MRI scanner, um, which actually might give you these detectable differences. So oh if you know anybody Shenzhen, who wants to go in the scanner and try to put themselves into different states, uh, I'm putting myself us. into a state right now. <laughs> <laughs> this is actually it's that yeah, easy. <laughs> <laughs> if only you had me in the scanner. Uh, yeah, but we should talk to some other um, jhana teachers. As I mentioned, there are these different ways of doing it. I think having someone like Lee Brasington, who's co-author on one of the articles we were discussing, mm -hmm. having him be part of this discussion, if we're going to do this, we could even have him come in mm -hmm. and uh, <laughs> There's no end to things you could do, but yeah, interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll certainly reach out to him uh, and uh, see if we could come on perhaps for a special episode just on this on this topic. I think that would be. Yeah. And then if we form a collaboration, the uh, <clears throat> the the uh, uh, what's the phrase they use? The origin myth will have actually been recorded. <laughs> it would be interesting to look at ecstatic or pleasurable spiritual experiences in different traditions as well and contrast them, like the jhanas and then Zen Buddhism and tantric traditions and you know, you see how what's going on in the brain is similar or different based on specific training modalities. And if there's a you know similar neurophysiological underpinning to ecstatic spiritual experience period, which I would be willing, my, my hypothesis would be yes. My integrated view <clears throat> would be the bird's eye view. Big picture wise, and by big picture, I mean um, averaged over many people that do a significant liberation-oriented lifelong practice, not necessarily monks and nuns, but householders that do regular retreats, life practice, uh, that kind of structure. <clears throat> I would say, big picture-wise, um, there's a fundamental theme. Uh, I have chosen to call it integration, but that's short for integration of the non-human with the human. <laughs> that would be one way to put it. The non-human is emptiness, no self, perhaps free energy change, spontaneity. Um, it's, it doesn't have will, it doesn't have desire, it doesn't need to know, it doesn't care. Um, but a human being does need to know. A human being better care. And we have will, we have desire. Um, so how these two worlds 
work together in a complementary way is the integration piece. And sure, there's a general tendency if you go into emptiness, no self, oneness, call it what you want, there's a general tendency for the human side to become more fulfilled and more effective, but that's just a general tendency. Um, there's a distribution. Some people, that general tendency is enough to carry their practice to a good long-term outcome. But many people require some systematic guidance in this process of integrating. And uh, <clears throat> some people have a dickens of a time with it. Mm. And that's your DPDR, fall into the pit of the void, real dark night of the soul, as per St. John of the Cross, dark night of the soul. Um, so, but those people also make it through if they get the right guidance in general. So that could be handled. It's just takes a long time in general and it's labor intensive. And of course there are failures, but in general, one need not worry too much, but um, these, we want to provide very specific guidelines. So you know what to look for that may be integration issues. And you also know what to do about it if they come up. And we don't have to go into the details here, but in the training at Unified Mindfulness, they're trained and they're tested in uh, their ability to deal with integration issues. I call it the Johnny algorithm, accentuate the positive, eliminate the negative, latch on to the affirmative, don't mess with Mr. In-Between, Johnny Mercer, 1940s. You can, that's a summary of a mnemonic for how to help with the integration. So anything you do that enhances fulfillment through pleasure is going to help the void be more fulfilling for you. And the more that the nothingness of its own smiles and does good, that's the liberation in, in, in action um, combined with um, request to be a good person. So I see it integrated in that sense yeah, from, a, from a big picture point of view. Yeah, uh, that's, that's beautiful, Shenzhen. And you know, what's interesting about trying to figure out how these systems are integrated um, I think that coming back to the De Vago model where he's talking about stimulus response associations all the way up to the sense of self, 
and how the basal ganglia is sort of at the center of how all of these things are interacting with each other. Um, you know, of course, the basal ganglia is also connected to the insula, which is the piece of the brain that's processing the body. So you're talking about the body piece. Um, and it's connected to a lot of other systems that deal with the sense of self, like the default mode network. Um, so what the basal ganglia is doing is it's trying to it's trying to help you maintain a lot of that information so you can bias your behavior to act in the world that's in a consistent way for your sense of self to help you do what you need to do to get things done. And what you're talking about is now this other piece of knowledge of the self, uh, which is something radically different than what it thinks it is. And then trying to reintegrate that knowledge system into the brain so it can guide behavior again. So again, it's all kind of coming through that same system of guidance. Um, but the thing is, is that the basal ganglia is pretty much unconscious. It's implicit. It's based on dopamine, which is a, a really powerful little rascal in the system. You know, it can get addicted to things pretty quickly. And so you have to use a lot of your top-down sort of effort attention and awareness and constantly pushing it within that system to break up those automatic patterns that are, have been there all along to help you survive to this new version of you essentially that is now getting laid down that now needs its own implicit sort of behaviors um, so for example when you're driving your car and, and someone cuts you off instead of implicitly becoming angry there's a piece of you that can implicitly uh, fall into that equanimity, that sort of balanced openness to the experience. Uh, but that's a whole nother part of the system that has to get routed through the basal ganglia. <laughs> and so, you know, I, as I, as I hear you trying to fit this into a reductionist brain model, which maybe isn't the right way to do that. But as I'm listening to what you just said, you know, trying to fit it within that model, um, it really has to go through that implicit basal ganglia system and that's just going to take a lot of effort and time, a lot of top-down sort of attentional pressure, pushing that system into a new state. You know, it reminds me actually, I just listened, I've been binge watching your YouTube channel, Shinzen, and I just listened to this, I just listened to this talk that Steve forwarded me about after enlightenment, what do you do, was the question. And it was so, um, illuminating and you use the bull metaphor or uh hurting hurting of some variety riding a bull uh, this sort of ox, thing about ox hurting ox hurting, ox hurting yeah. i'm sorry yeah the ox hurting metaphor to say that so first you experience a moment where you perceive this empty void filled with bliss and pleasure and then that's not it you have to get on and ride this thing and keep on keep on top of it and keep re-experiencing it until that thing becomes productive and loving and efficacious and all these other things, which is kind of what Jay is saying neurologically. So you, first you have to experience it and then you have to repeat experience it until it integrates with your entire life in a positive way. And that, how that occurs neurologically is uh, definitely, I have no idea, but I, I would, Jay had some really interesting ideas last night. So I'm curious to hear about those. Yeah, well, I think it, it points to these implicit systems because, you know, what we're talking about with these peak states, if we want to call them that, or ecstatic states, is it's a it's a potentiality in the system. the The brain body system can experience these things, and these these practitioners who get to experience them are a case in point. 
but it doesn't, that experience doesn't undo all the implicit neural associations in the brain and the body that are, that are all still deeply there. And they're in a system that predates humanity. I mean, this basal ganglia system is essentially in roaches. Okay. I mean, we're talking about a very old system. So, you know, that thing is, it doesn't care about your ecstatic experience or your peak experiences or your, your, your experience of no self, you know, what it's doing is trying to help you figure out what to do to survive and ultimately to pass your genes and all the other things that evolution has in, in need for you. And so, you know, what I hear Shenzhen saying is you, you got to sort of fit that human potential experience into the, the body that has all these automatic implicit associations that are just there to help you survive and you know help that system integrate all of that so it becomes something new and uh you know the the open question for me is how how long does that take can you do it does the one experience really do it and it's possible and i shenzhen can tell us but i think some of the traditions might say that there you go you go in that direction and you're starting to undo that but from the brain point of view, you know, just thinking about the way that dopamine links neurons together and the way that that works is it seems like that's going to take time to undo that. And you need to, like you said, you need to have these experiences and then do the training on top of them and just constantly do that until you, uh, you kind of undo all that implicit association. I have a question. We talk about like, endorphin rush or an endorphin high, that's something that we can actually experience subjectively. I know when I work out or in fact, in general, do any stress, even just walking in the sun from here to the lab, it's a stressor. I know I get this pleasure and we colloquially call it an endorphin high. My first question is, are we actually consciously detecting endorphin amount flux that could be measured the way you measure substance flux with any of these tools that we have? Is there actually amount flux going on of endorphins as I'm saying I'm having an endorphin high? That's number one. And number two, we had an example of what seemed to be, uh, well, maybe a, a distinction between le level of dopamine and having a subjective experience of level of dopamine. So what I'm wondering is, is there actually a conscious dopamine high? <laughs> or is whoever likes the dopamine so way implicit that there's no explicit, uh, oh, I'm on a dopamine high? Or, yeah. So I just wonder, little clarification of those phrases. Hmm. Uh, the first thing that comes to mind is correlation does not prove causation. So we know that higher levels of dopamine, endorphins, and serotonin, and other things correlate with the state reported. 
of pleasure, uh, but how pleasure actually plays out in the brain, as far as I understand it, is a big mystery. And I know that Chelsea has been digging into this, but what, what we do know is that you can stimulate some of the uh, dopaminergic systems that we've been talking about in humans, and you don't produce pleasure. Um, so it doesn't seem enough to just have high levels of dopamine or maybe even endorphins or things. You need to have them routed as we're talking about through different systems in a way that leads to the pleasure state. And what those systems are, I think neuroscience is very, very new. We don't in that area, we, we just really don't quite understand. Has um, anyone ever tested a human being's ability to detect fluctuations of dopamine in real time or serotonin uh, or endorphins. Like, okay, we're watching the fluctuations and they're reporting their subject, you know, how well it's correlated. Has anyone ever looked into that? Uh, I'm not sure, Chelsea, have you seen anything? I, I doubt it, but that would be a fascinating study. Yeah, because I always wonder at what point is this part of something we're going to explicitly look at with meditation, or it's something that is in the sanskaras and it can only be dealt with implicitly. That's why I'm asking is, you know, do you really feel anything as these things are going off? Right. Yeah. I don't know the answer to, has it been measured in real time? I do know that many studies about drugs are, that produce dopamine responses are done in rodents. And what we're looking at more than the actual subjective experience of a rodent is what does they, do they do? Which is what Jay has been talking about is that mostly dopamine is going to affect one's behavior possibly more than one subjective experience. If you were to look at pleasure for the sake of pleasure, like in orgasm, you're gonna get more of an opioid response, like you were just saying, more of an endorphin response. This has been measured because they've given women who have orgasms opioid antagonists and they don't have the same experience and they don't experience the pain blocking effects that an orgasm normally produces. So we know opioid is working in pleasure experiences along with other neurotransmitters like serotonin, oxytocin, um, you know, and dopamine in concert. So you're getting a cocktail and symphony of various neurotransmitters. If I had to make a conjecture, I would say that if there was a subjective experience that correlated with dopamine, it would be more like craving, desire, yearning, wanting. And if you had to have, make an oversimplification about an endorphin response, it would be more like pleasure. And then the relationship between pleasure and wanting is a, uh, separable, like I said, but overlapping. So you're going to get some experiences where pleasure causes craving and some experiences where pleasure does not cause craving and some experiences where craving occurs without pleasure. So people are doing a thing. It's not really pleasurable for them, but they keep feeling motivated to do it and having their sort of uh, approach behaviors be so strong that they can't really get the behavior under control. Um, that was a lot of info in one fell swoop, but- um, But this is- this is central because the early formulation of Buddhism um, in its simplest statement is all our problems have a single cause ultimately, something called craving. 
Um, so a relationship to the wanting changes radically as the result of practice. Um, I don't think there'd be any um, disagreement with that. Some of the things you said, you know, it leads me to wonder two hand grenades, really. First of all, uh, if there's this uh, uh, rerouting of the implicit bias of the way the individual is functioning through practice, presumably the previous implicit bias is optimized in terms of uh, cognitive efficiency and the uh, later uh, implicit bias, the post post practice, if you want, the post uh, practice effect bias would be a new optimization. What about the, as I think Shinsen has called it in, in another context, the awkward intermediary zone? Would there be a time where the two uh, roots <laughs> are competing uh, in, in neck and neck or so, something like that uh, for what one does? And might that be more stressful than either one? Um, might there be a barrier to entry to the uh, the post-practice effect routing? That's the first hand grenade. And the second one is there's sometimes debate in among different strains of Buddhism. We've talked about the different jhana uh, schools, Pauk Seodol versus Ayakema, for instance. And in fact, on the podcast, I've interviewed representatives of both schools. In fact, Tina Rasmussen and Stephen Snyder from Pauk Seodol's so so-called hard jhana. Uh, end, where jhanas are seen to be uh, non-dual absorptions in which one, much like Patanjali's uh, stages of samadhi, one is completely non-dually uh, merging with whatever the object is, or, or uh, indeed. Or uh, Lee Brasington's Ayakema, so-called soft jhana uh, side of the spectrum, where the self is experiencing the jhana, at least, at least in the early jhanas. Uh, but there's also some debate about something called dry vipassana versus wet vipassana. And I wonder how that might factor into this idea of which direction are we trending the bias, the hedonic valence? Well, let's put it this way, uh, driver passana, one simply analyzes, uh, going, you know, a deconstructing experience, perhaps even focusing on suffering itself as one of the three doors. Surely, how can that uh, perhaps negative biasing possibly result in uh, liberation? or uh, the, the, the proposed effect of that method. But then there are other, uh, uh, the other uh, approach, wet for passing, says, well, get the Janus together first, get the system uh, uh, pleasurable and toned in that way. Of course, get the concentration high, but also there's presumably a, a valencing of the system towards the pleasurable and the blissful. And then from that vantage point, then turn towards deconstructing experience. And that's going to produce maybe a smoother ride or a different sort of liberation. So those are two hand grenades, really. What about the awkward intermediary zone? And is there, uh, how can we explain the differences operationally between wet and dry Vipassana? I am <clears throat> fascinated that there is in the English language, a phrase hard jhana and soft jhana, those two phrases. I know that the phrase dry vipassana comes from Pali. There is sukha vipassana. Um, I'm going to suggest the contrast would be moist rather than wet, uh, perhaps in English. But I've, I do not remember the Pali for moist. I don't know if there was a binary contrast. I could look it up. Um, uh, th this 
But hard versus soft, I don't know if there's an Asian uh, e traditional equivalent to that distinction. Um, it may have arisen because of the two approaches um, that you mentioned, Lee versus, uh, uh, well, Ayakema really, and then through Lee, and then uh, Pa'alk through the teachers that you mentioned and others. So I myself, based on reading the, uh, the descriptions of the jhanas, always assumed that the ancient texts referred to something more like Pa'alk. But I don't know. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, but, but it, it's a really important issue. If we're going to look at these things scientifically, we, we got to get this all straightened out. So we now have dry versus moist, um, uh, vipassana, and hard versus soft shamatha. So that gives us um, a nice four-way contrast to talk about, but maybe not now. <laughs> uh, right here. Any, any final comments from Jane Chelsea then on that before we before I close it? Um, yeah, just for your first comment, it's really an interesting question. Um, <clears throat> from the brain's point of view, I'll, everything's competing. Um, so if you look in the visual system, for example, two neighboring neurons are competing for the decision of where the object is. If you look in the auditory cortex, there's competition. So this notion of competition is brain-wide, uh, according to some theories. Um, and there's all, something called the biased competition model of vision, for example. So that's very interesting because the basal ganglia, the stimulus response system that we were talking about, is thought to or argued to be competing even with the prefrontal cortex in terms of top-down sort of awareness, if we want to think about it, or attention versus this bottom-up automatic unconscious behavior that we were talking about. Um, so even system-wide, they're competing. Um, the conscious system wants to come online because it wants to think and do all of those things, but that's very energy intensive. And so the bottom up automatic system is trying to preserve energy by making everything automatic. And what tends to happen with something like Facebook is that they hijack the bottom up system and they do that very intentionally. There's lots of documentaries and books you can read about the way that they program their algorithms to hijack that bottom up system. And the brain in an anthropomorphic way likes that because now it gets to preserve that energy. And so you can think about it in terms of biasing competition between systems. What, what I hear you talking about is now we're in this middle space. We've done a lot of top-down attention, attentional practice in order to uh, give you a little freedom from that bottom-up biasing. But now you've got these two systems in this kind of flux and they're trying to figure out who's going to win the fight or who, who gets the more weight. Um, I don't think that the brain would generate stress because of that. I think what you're doing is you're actually just changing the weights of the biasing system um, from bottom up to top down. What, what happens is that the top down attentional practice is stressful because you're having to overdo the bottom up weights. 
And so the effort is really what's causing the stress, I think, more than the competition itself. But I could almost imagine another scenario where you start balancing the weights between bottom up and top down, and it actually leads to less overall stress for the person because there's less automaticity in their behavior, you know, meditators experiences. You get a sort of little bit of behavioral freedom to get to make a choice that may lead to a better outcome for you. And so that middle place that you're talking about might actually feel a little better for the, for the person who's starting to have insights about how their bottom-up automatic behavior is leading to unhappiness or, or discomfort in the world. Um, but it, it could go the other way because as, as it happens sometimes on meditation retreats, you realize that those bottom-up patterns were helping you and bringing them up and and changing them or dissolving them then leads you with needing a new way to deal with these issues that they're helping you deal with. And so, you know, it can lead to sort of negative emotions and things like that. Um, if that implicit behavior was actually serving to help you in some way. Um, so for example, if your boss is a jerk and uh, you've developed a negative relationship pattern with them to help you deal with that, if you, if you destroy that pattern, you have to deal with the boss still. So you have to do something else. And so that might create a little bit of tension. You know, it's interesting. Um, you're, you're saying that the, at the implicit level, all of uh, this massive competition um, would not in and of itself result in an explicit experience of um, self-conflict or stress or whatever. It's just a yin-yang of nature doing its tai chi chan. Yet at some point, that results in a surface experience of a suffering self. Even when people are relatively happy, they're actually not nearly as happy as they could be if they had the contemplative uh, paradigm to live by from. <laughs> um, so, Somehow, competition turns into conflict. And just how does that happen? Because the, I think fundamentally, if you ask me to describe the changes, lo, these many years, um, it seems like basically life's very easy because everyone's getting along. But if I were to say what the surface experience is, the surface experience is a moment by moment knowledge. The explicit experience is this moment by moment availability of a knowledge that the implicit has already taken care of it. 
because it has. By the time I have a problem, the depths have already begun churning. And the surface now seems to know you don't have to do very much. It's, you're going to know in a minute. So just let them do what they need to do. There's some sort of transfer of control. Um, I, I just got to ask, biased competition. You and IJ were on a call yesterday. <laughs> That's for me, one of the, you're smiling too. This is, this is, I don't know how much we could talk about this or not, but this is pretty delicious. It's very, very edgy <laughs> in the sense of on the edge of what humans can figure out with their intellect at this time in history. So we were talking about another biased situation that may be relevant in linguistics and even art appreciation. Remember, they were there was something about the Fibonacci sequence and the golden ratio coming up in a certain kind of competition. And that word competition was used several times by our colleagues. What was the competition? I thought it was, was it between clear distinctions and continuity, smoothness, fluidity of processing, or can you, if you remember, because I don't, but boy, that was interesting. And maybe it's related to what we're talking about here, maybe not, but just the word competition got my attention from this last conversation we had. Yeah, so uh, that was in the context of ambiguity. And, you know, there's, there's some core principles, which may be fun one day to talk about when we do podcast 27. Um, <laughs> um, there are the core principles. There's the principle of competition in the brain. There's the principle of ambiguity. The brain is constantly solving ambiguous inputs. All the inputs to the visual system, auditory system, to the body, this is all ambiguous. The brain doesn't know what's outside of it. And so it's constantly taking these sort of crappy inputs in a sense, you know, flat two-dimensional visual input, for example, and it's trying to figure out, crunch it, process it, and then give you this beautiful three-dimensional hologram that we're looking at in front of us. So one of the ways it's doing that is through competition. It's taking an ambiguous input, the neurons next to each other, the neurons across from each other, the neurons across levels are all competing because they all have a hypothesis about what's out there. And they use competition. There's a couple other principles that they're using, we think. So this is definitely true in language. Language is entirely ambiguous. I mean, for someone like me who has a low mumbly voice, your brain is filling in like every other gap in my voice. And most of the time you can get the meaning out of what I'm saying. So that was the context of what they were talking about. Um, and the idea is that you might be using things like Fibonacci to structure the meaning uh, to help you pick out what's out there. But the other part of that equation is the expectation in the system. 
So the brain is dealing with ambiguity and it's using prediction and expectation to help itself figure out what's out there. And I, I think that that's definitely happening in language and that's where they were going with what you're talking about. But I actually think that concept goes straight to the core of craving that we were talking about earlier that the basal ganglia is also using this ambiguity resolution and, and it's using expectation and prediction. And what tends to happen across these systems, in, even in language system, is that when there's a mismatch between what the brain is predicting and expecting and what comes in, then you get this, the brain kind of has all these other systems that have sort of emergency alarm bells that go off. And it tries to re-steer the processing to get an outcome that's consistent with the expectation. Um, and so this happens in language, for example. If I give you the, the phrase, uh, put the socks in the toaster. Okay, when I said toaster, your brain wasn't expecting that I would say put the socks in the toaster. If I'm recording your EEG, I'll see this big brain potential called the N400 that the brain is saying, hey, this doesn't make sense. What is What the heck is this crazy guy talking about? And so other parts of the brain have to come online and try to fit the meaning into it. And that process of fitting the meaning, you know, even as I said, it kind of feels weird. Put the socks in the toaster. You're, you're like, what? Wait a minute. Yeah, that's not right. So, you know, I think that same sort of mismatch of expectation and meaning is like right at the heart of craving. Um, and, and the craving system, what the brain is expecting and what it's trying to get out of the world relative to what it's getting. Um, that system has been designed to help you say, okay, I, I thought I was getting enough sugar. I need a little bit more sugar. So I'm going to go out, I'm motivated and get it, get that sugar, get it in the system. And now I have a resolution of that tension, uh, that's going on. You're Sorry, that was long-winded, but no, <laughs> I wanted to connect. But this is, <laughs> this is significant to my ear, your um, uh, proposing a very deep theory. Let me echo it back to you uh, to see if uh, I've connected the arrows uh, because I haven't heard anyone else say this, what I thought you just said. So, there's this, um, I'm going to use my own words, and I'd like you to correct me if I, you know, don't quite say it right. Mm -hmm. So there's, um, there's a well understood system. Uh, I'm sorry, a well understood phenomenon in neuroscience, which is um, what happens when you get a mismatch from a prediction. Uh, the sensory input and the prediction don't match. So you've got, um, in a sense, a dissonance. Um, so for one thing, uh, you get uh, an, a negative uh, deflection at the 400 millisecond in the EEG, right? That's the N400. Mm -hmm. um, which I think negative goes up. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, um, and that's an, a signature of a mis mismatch. Uh, am I correct so far? That's right. 
Yep. Then for specific for meaning in the system, but there's other systems right. that predate meaning. Yep. Uh, so there are other markers in the EEG that show this dissonance or mi mismatch. Yep. The FN that we talked about earlier or ERN event related negativity is the one that actually is thought to be related to dopamine. So there's one specifically for dopamine. Wow. So there's, uh, there are a number of uh, places where this phenomenon has been quantified by neuroscience. Um, now you're saying that um, craving, which would seem to me to be perhaps complex, perhaps difficult to analyze or quantify scientifically at the level of mass, energy, and information theory, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, but you're saying that this other thing, which is quite physical, and we sort of understand, um, or are beginning to understand, you're saying that that would underlie the craving. Now, in Buddhism, Buddhism, traditional Buddhism, especially early Buddhism, makes a lot of use of the notion of necessary and sufficient causes. So craving is a necessary cause for non-nirvana. Um, so if you, whatever the Buddha meant by tanha or the great masters who used this terminology in a long, long time ago, whatever they meant by that, their paradigm was get rid of this and you're gonna be fine. But the great thing about necessary causes is they concatenate down. You can have necessary causes like turtles all the way down. So if this fairly well understood um, array of uh, phenomena that are related to mismatch, if that's in the end what underlies the craving, then we may be able to get a more quantified handle on what would eliminate the necessary condition for the necessary condition of non-nirvana. Mm -hmm. uh, I think you followed my mm -hmm. reasoning. Did I get this right? I, I think it's a plausible theory uh, for sure. I, I would guess that there are multiple underlying components to what we're calling craving in the system. And that's one major piece um, that we, you know, is under the umbrella of what causes craving. And I think the reason I say that is because this is the piece that causes the drive. So the point of this uh, error signaling system in the brain is to drive you to correct. So put the socks in the toaster. I said something wrong. I need to say, oh, I said something wrong. So it drives me to say, oh, I caught myself. Say well, something else. You know what? <clears throat> that created an interesting association. 
<laughs> so in the Rinzai Zen of Japan, in what they call a Semmon Dojo, which is a traditional training monastery, because not every temple you know, has a meditation training program. Um, but in the standard Rinzai Zen, Haku, what's called the Hakuin system, um, a friend of mine has written quite sensitively about that. Um, uh, what's his name? Oh, it'll come to me uh, in a minute. Um, Hori Sogen. Um, uh, Victor Hori is his English name, uh, is a good source for the koans, how they work. Mm -hmm. Anyway, there's 1,750 of them, theoretically, and supposedly you pass all those koans uh, over a period of, say, 10 years. You're <clears throat> living hardcore monastic life. So one... Uh, Zen master in that lineage, I remember him saying, I might have heard it. I think I read it. Um, <clears throat> if you hold up a sledgehammer, let go, and it goes up instead of down, the eye of the Dharma is not caught in confusion. Mm. Just say. <laughs> I was gonna. I was gonna jump in uh, with something that relates to exactly what you just said, which is that I think it's worth clarifying that we're talking about a few different sets of conflict here. So there's the conflict between, and both of them we've used the words deep and superficial to represent. So I want to disambiguate what's going on. We've talked about the deep levels of the nervous system as in like subcortical and possibly bodily closer to the CNS. And then we've talked about cortical. So it's that on a very spatial physical level is deep and superficial, although the superficial is equally as powerful as the deep in different ways. And then what you just said, Shinzen, is about the deep source of reality itself and the superficial level of expectation in the mind. And then we've talked about conflict between neurons and conflict between expectations and incoming sensory data. The last one and the first one could sort of be hedged together in a certain way. We could say that the cortex sort of expects and that incoming data sort of comes up through the deep levels of the nervous system and interacts with the cortex. But the reason why what you're saying is so powerful is because in your case, Shinzen, both sets of conflicts have been reduced. So you don't have a conflict between what's coming in from the deep levels of the nervous system and what your cortex and expectations expect to happen to you. And you've integrated the deep source with the superficial personality. So those two things could be happened differently for different people. So let's say you don't know God or you don't know deep reality and you don't expect to. You're gonna have a relative balance between expectations and incoming data and between subcortical and cortical areas. Once you start to know something about God, but yet incoming reality hasn't yet adjusted, or you get a spontaneous experience of God and you have no idea what's going on. Like if I was to be implanted somehow in Shinzen's bottom-up sensory data, my top-down processing would probably go insane. Freaking out about like, have I lost my mind? Am I hallucinating? <laughs> what's going on here, right? Like, so 
what you were asking, Steve, and what you're talking about neurologically, Dr. Sangmedi, I think in some ways is the process of harmonizing all of those systems. So first we change either our expectations or our reality, and then both top down and bottom up have to sort of harmonize and align slowly towards more and more godliness, right? So you have to know God a little bit more. And each one of those shifts from expectation and reality in the system is going to cause some amount of stress and norepinephrine release and like expectation, uh, the stress of expectations and reality not perfectly aligning. And then once you do that enough times and you go through that stressful process of changing expectations and changing bottom-up reality, and you get to Shinzen's level where everything you expect there to be God all the time and there is God all the time, then you've annihilated all the conflicts and you're in a good place. Not all. Uh, but, well, a lot of them. I mean, I, I'm just, I'm just, you know, speaking in, uh, printing with broad brushstrokes here. But the idea being that until you expect God and receive God, you're going to be dealing with the slow process of learning to do that over time. And awkward intermediary periods are going to keep occurring until you get there. In little bits at a time, you're going to experience the stress of those awkward intermediary periods where expectations and reality shift beneath your feet. And that is an inevitable part of what occurs. What you were saying, Shinzen, about like reality itself is, is uncomfortable is supported by neuroscience. The more default mode network activity you have, even if it's positive and you think you're great, the more suffering people report. So at some level, there's some discontent that's then moving towards content as you get deeper. And what you just said about the, the acts is, is, is representative of this whole thing. If you're at the point where the eye of the Dharma is your reality and you see an ax floating upwards, you're not going to be shocked because you expect for God to be magical or whatever the ax floating up represents. And it is. Ultimate reality isn't surprised by ultimate reality, but the lower self is surprised, right? And so until you get those things in harmony, you're going to experience stress. That was just my glomming together of all of the things you guys just said over the past seven minutes into sort of what I hope will be a, a listener-friendly synthesis. That, that was fantastic. Yeah, thank you for that. And I think that's an excellent place uh, for this episode, number six, uh, to end it. I still think so many open loops, so many cliffhangers. We really must do this again for number seven. So uh, what would my brain cells be then? 64, 128? <laughs> Is that right? 128. <laughs> 128. Almost build a time on shoelaces then. Right. <laughs> but anyway, uh, thank you so much to um, well, how, many, how many How many? We've done six, right? We have, yeah. Well, the next, we just passed five. So we have to at least go to eight to get the next Fibonacci number. <laughs> After that, it's 1321. I can't argue with that logic. So it looks like we're, we're locked in uh, for Fibonacci's sake. We have two more, so, so we can invite two different guests to our two more. This Neuroscience yeah, yeah. Dharma Avengers Roundtable is really uh, taking over the podcast. Uh, Shinsen Young, Chelsea Fasado, and Dr. Jay Sanguinetti, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Bye-bye, everyone. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.